the Veterinary Viewfinder. This week, we're talking about pet owner nutrition myths, what you should know, and how you should respond. Welcome back to the Veterinary Viewfinder, the podcast that tackles the toughest topics in veterinary medicine. And what is tougher to tackle than people having some crazy questions and ideas about what they feed their pet? And this week we have a special guest, a veterinary nutritionist, and I can't wait for you to meet her. As always, I am your host, Dr. Ernie Ward. I'm registered veterinary technician, Becky Mosser. And we're missing Cindy this week. She yes. is traveling or maybe she's sleeping in. I'm not sure. Being amazing. Being amazing, but we miss her very much. This person is amazing. She is here today, Dr. Julie Churchill. And if you don't know who Dr. Julie Churchill is, she is a board certified veterinary nutritionist. She is at the University of Minnesota, where she has spent most of her adult career. She is a Michigan State grad. But more importantly, she did her clinical internship at the greatest veterinary school in the world. Of course, we are talking about, ladies and gentlemen, the University of Georgia. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Julie Churchill. Hi, Ernie. Hi, Becky. Nice to join you today. Well, Julie, you and I have, have known each other for a long time. We've worked on a wide variety of, of different boards and groups and summits, and we've co-authored stuff. But today we're going to talk about that one of our most shared passions, and that is pet obesity and nutrition. And, you know, Julie, first of all, I want to thank you for being a longtime board member for the Association for Pet Obesity Prevention. Happy to be there. It's an important topic. It is. And Julie, one of the things that you really helped influence the association was the getting, you know, to getting more information around pet owner attitudes about pet food and nutrition and exercise and all that. And, and I know that's near and dear to your heart. And so I, I really want to kind of jump into a what why do you find that pet obesity and nutritional issues are so important to you personally? I am a pet owner. I currently have four dogs, but my all-time high was five dogs and six cats. So I, I get it. I get it. I, I think I was called to nutrition because it's so tightly linked to nurturing. And so I understand how difficult it is when it's a, a, a food is the cornerstone of health and food is the cornerstone of the primary way we care and nurture and love for our, for our friends. Yeah. And, and Julie, unfortunately, sometimes we confuse food with love, which mm -hmm. leads us to a lot of myths and misperceptions. And, and let's just jump into it. I mean, Julie, uh, what I want to do today with you is sort of discuss the latest pet obesity survey findings. I want to get your opinion on it. I want to get Becky's opinion on it because, I mean, these are real issues that we are confronting today. So let's just start off with the top line message that we found. This year, once again, we saw a steady increase in the number of pets with obesity. And right now, currently, it's there's 56% of dogs and 60% of cats were classified as a BCS 6, 7, 8, or 9. And I guess I'll, I'll back up real quick just to let you know where this data originated. Uh, each year, if you haven't signed up, please go to petobestyprevention.org because this is a volunteer you know survey. And we had 178 clinics uh, participate this year. And Julia, I, I need more, but you you and I know we, we beg you for, for your data. We uh, do. That, that equals 1,610 dogs, 714 cats. So again, you know, a decent, at least statistically significant amount of, of pets and, and clinics, but, you know, we need more data. We also do a survey in addition to the 
the Pet Obesity Prevalence Report, and that consisted of 1,215 pet owners and 544 vet professionals. So these are, Becky, these are veterinary technicians, they're associate veterinarians. Let's let's start with that number. 56% of, of dogs, 60% of cats, their veterinary professionals said were overweight or obese. Julie, what does that actually mean? Oh, gosh. It means I'm really discouraged. <laughs> We're not winning the war. So pet obesity prevention, I think... What we do know is that it, it, we are increasing awareness, but we just aren't getting the message out in a usable way that owners understand what health looks like, feels like, and how to keep them there before they become obese. I'm, it's very discouraging that we've been working on this so long, and yet we also know that it mirrors the data in people, that unhealthy weight gain is so easy, and healthy weight loss is such a challenge. Yeah, and, and Becky, Julie brings up an excellent point there. I mean, how are we miscommunicating this issue? Like like Julie says, I mean, many of us have been have, have spent most of my adult career, certainly Julie has as well, doing nothing but writing and speaking and in any way communicating, but it seems like we're not having the effect. I mean, what do you think about this? Yeah, I don't know if it's miscommunication so much as lack of communication, right? And we've totally talked about this before. It is a sensitive topic. It is really hard to bring up obesity to pets, about pets to pet parents. And what we know is a lot of times it's hand in hand. So we might back out of the conversation because either we're experiencing obesity or the owner is obese or there is some reason that we don't want to go there um, and have that conversation. So I'm not sure it's so much of a lack of awareness or knowledge or knowing it's important, but I think it's a lack of feeling comfortable and having the conversation. Right. And, and Julie, uh, I mean, she's right. It's a sensitive topic, yet uh, it really shouldn't be a sensitive topic because you and I and many others feel that obesity is a disease, right? And so what are some of the consequences when we're dealing with a pet who's who's struggling with obesity? Well, we really, I mean, that's the thing. I don't think this should be such a sensitive topic. And that's the message that we're not sort of penetrating, not to shy away what I know is the consequences are that pets don't feel well, and it's insidious. And so, again, it, it, I'm, uh, my passion is really prevention because when they are overweight, it's snuck up on us so slowly. They're not moving as well. They are much more likely to have arthritis, and the progression of arthritis is dramatically more quick. Uh, increased chances of uh, higher blood pressure, kidney disease, some forms of cancer, depending on the species, diabetes if you're a cat. So there's so many things, but even uh, that they live shorter lives. So they won't live as long and they won't be as happy and have a good quality of life. And I think owners just really don't hear and integrate that message because I think we we are we give ourselves too much permission to be uncomfortable. And I, I think that's really where we need to focus. Yeah, it's quality of life, and you're absolutely right. And you know, our dear friend, uh, Dr. Alex German from the UK, which we had on this podcast before, it's all about quality of life. And the great news is, if you're listening today, if you help your pet patients lose as little as 6% of their current body weight, you know, they're obese, and you lose 6% of that extra weight, then we see demonstrable improvements in the quality of life. So it's not like you've got to get them down to their normal or ideal weight to see improvements. I mean, it takes just a little bit of effort. So Julie, let's now jump into the next part of the survey. Um, and that is we ask veterinary professionals and pet owners, had they ever tried to help their own pet lose weight? And our results showed that 
percent of pet owners and 54 percent of veterinary professionals said, yep, I've tried to help my dog or cat lose weight. What do you think about that? I was a little surprised, I will confess. So I, I guess the good news is that maybe we are um, sending the message to our vet healthcare teams on the importance if half or a little over half of them are trying to help their pet lose weight. I guess the, the flip side of that question is how many were successful? Right, right. Yeah. And we don't have a good way to measure that. But what, <laughs> what, what do you think, uh, Becky? You know, so ha- like, like Julie says, about half of the pet owners and vet professionals said, yeah, my dog or cat, I'm trying to help it lose weight. Guilty. I am guilty in my very own household, right? It happens quick. Um, Winter is brutal. We don't have our pets out as much. And then it's like all of a sudden we turn around this spring and I think, oh my gosh, you're a little bit of a triangle. We've got to get on top of this. You know, I have a dog who did the whole, I got spayed and it it sprouted thing. Um, I travel a lot. It's hard to keep on top of it. So I think this is part of, um, from a support staff side, I think about things that we are very empathetic to because we deal with it a lot. And I think this is one of them. I, I know we can be empathetic with our clients about money and getting overwhelmed because we do that as well. And I think this is an area where we're empathetic to the struggle when they look at us and say, like, I, I, you know, I just don't have time or, you know, well, he gets into the cat food. And sometimes we want to roll our eyes. People are overwhelmed and stretched in life. They've got a couple kids. They're running soccer. Like, they just don't worry that much about Fluffy getting into the cat food three times a day. But you're right. We've got to get to the emotional side of this. And we've got to help people have that conversation and build the confidence around it. Take out the emotional factor and really focus on that quality of life. You guys are exactly right. Well, we asked those people who said they had tried to help their pet lose weight, how did they accomplish this? And while the numbers were kind of universally spread across the board, the top three areas that that kept popping up in our survey were low-calorie diets, weight loss diets, and again, we were looking at therapeutic weight loss diets in that category, and increased exercise. So, Julie, it's the classic eat less, exercise more approach to weight loss, and and maybe that's not as effective as as people would think it is. No darn, because we really want it to be easier than that. Right, right. Right. So again, I, I think part of the communication challenge for us is what what do clients think of when they say a low calorie diet? I think that most of the survey respondents, quite frankly, were going to the grocery store and buying a marketing bag. You know, they're buying a food that claims to be lower calorie or, you know, healthier diet or healthier weight. And in reality, that's not going to be the type of formulation that that people like Julie and I are going to recommend for weight loss. Is that fair, Julie? Yes, Ernie, exactly. I think even though um, just fairly recently, a couple of years ago, the uh, the AFCO laws changed so that the calorie information must be on the bag. But I, I know if you've looked for it, it's pretty darn small right. and owners do not know. So I take a lot of diet histories, well, every patient, every time. And when they change foods, they, they're feeding a cup, they change to a new brand, and they're feeding a cup. So, of course, if it says light, it may be light in comparison to the maintenance food in that brand. But one light or lower calorie food to the compared to the next to the next is a huge variability. Yeah. And, you know, Julie, I I have an entire chapter in my book, Challenge, just on the marketing tricks that are employed. And it goes into that kind of detail because what is L-I-T-E? Because that's actually a different notation than a therapeutic weight loss or light calorie or lower calorie diet. So in addition to diets, low calorie and weight loss diets and all that stuff, we said, okay, what about exercise, right? So so we wanted to find out if, you know, if you're exercising, what were your biggest challenges? Because we know that's an issue. And guess what? The number one response was, Becky, 
too busy. 25% yes. of pet owners said they were too busy to exercise their pet, but gets better. 43% of veterinary professionals said they don't have the time. What do you think about that response? I mean, I want to stand up here and say, you know, better things than I have to say. Cause what I have to say is I get it. Like I get it. I have, it's funny. I was just talking with a friend of mine who um, was pet sitting for my mom who asked if there were running trails nearby. Cause she hadn't gotten to the gym, but she was also having guilt about leaving the dog in the crate any longer. And you and I were lecturing together at VMX and had that very question. And I always think to myself, well, what if you guys did both? People have a very hard time with, um, making the time for themselves and their pets and their family and that whole balance. And, and I understand it, but there are more and more creative ways to be doing these things together. And so I think the solution to the problem is not really looking for more time. It's how can you take these two tasks and combine them? Things like, you know, canine fit club where you can work out with your pet, things like taking your pet outside for that walk with you or um, incorporating them in some of your tasks, going up and down the stairs for the laundry. So um, I think we can find fun and creative ways to meld the two, but all I can say is I get it. I don't have time either. <laughs> well, and I agree with you, but Julie and I for the past decade or so have really leaned into another message, another component that we've been very concerned about as far as a limiter or an obstacle to exercise. And that is behavior problems. Like many people can't safely or adequately yes. or effectively walk their dog on a leash. So, so Julie, this year we asked that question and 21% of pet owners and 19% of veterinary professionals, so almost the same number, about 20% said that behavior issues were the reason they couldn't exercise their pet more often. What do you make of that? I get that too. I have the <laughs> I, true confessions. I have a very unruly three-year-old because three-year-old Labrador because life intruded and some I had some major challenges and she is not the dog I hope her to be. <laughs> so it, it is challenging. But again, I'll go back to that prevention because what I really hope is that in fact I'm creating a course called I don't I don't know the title yet but called uh, Health and wellness maintenance that will combine behavior dentistry and nutrition because really those have to go together starting from the puppy and kitten visits to integrate that message of exercise and training together. Wow, I love that idea because those are three areas that we see serious negligence based on behavior and, and life circumstances. So when you're building this in in the puppy stage, I think you're really on to something there. And, you know, I was just in New York City lecturing and it, and it makes me think about this is a lot of people might have the challenge of their environment. It, it, yes, behavior is an issue. But what about other issues? Like for me, I don't like to walk my dog by myself because I worry about other dogs. I've worked enough emergency shifts right. to know that other dogs can be a problem, even if my dog is on a leash and doing just fine. And then I was looking at these New York City dog walkers who are a real thing, who have 30 dogs on leashes as they plow through these New York streets. And I started to really consider accessibility for most people. It may not be as readily available for them to get, you know, these healthy diets um, if they're dealing with very restricted resources, even just in availability. So I love the idea of focusing on prevention and empowering staff at the puppy stage. We can really be changing the long-term life of our, of our clients' pets. 
Yeah. And, you know, we're working hard. I mean, Julie has helped me with this nine month initiative. You know, this is going back many years, Julie, we're still plowing away, aren't we? But, yes. you know, we, we know that we have to intervene earlier for us. The nine month visit is a great opportunity to set aside vaccines and all this other stuff and talk about nutrition and behavior. And of course, things like training and so forth to round out the obstacles to exercise. We had, as Becky alluded to, inadequate access to exercise areas. So they don't have a safe park or a safe neighborhood to walk their dog and the physical limitations of the owner owner and pet. So, you know, again, no big surprise there, but certainly something we need to be aware of as a profession. Uh, now, here's where our professional responsibility starts to go a little sideways. When we ask pet owners whether or not their veterinarian had recommended a maintenance or routine diet, not a weight loss program, but just a regular daily dog or cat food, only 48%, once again, less than half, of the pet owner said their vet recommended it. They also added that 15% of these respondents said they had to ask. So we know, Julie, that we still aren't making that regular food recommendation. How can we do better? Well, I have two answers. One is, um, although we can do better, if you, if you can compare this information to the old compliance study that was done a number of years ago, where over 90-some percent wanted a recommendation and only 15% perceived that they received it, maybe this is an improvement. I'm an optimist. So you're right. Um, I think that veterinary educators really need to hit this home that every pet at every visit needs an assessment and a specific recommendation. And again, that specific is an exact name of a food, a dose, a frequency, right. and a monitoring plan. And when I'm king, I tell my students uh, I'm running for office, but every pet <laughs> owner will know how to do a body condition score. Again, I think that's sort of a prerequisite for prevention. Yes. Yep. My kids could do that when they were kindergartners. It didn't make them always popular at their friend's house, but everyone can learn how to do it. I love that idea. And I think that, you know, you're absolutely right in incorporating the whole family and giving those educational tools. And if you don't know about the nine-month visit, do the research because I think it gives us a great opportunity. We've got to make this lifestyle conversations, um, not when it's too late and they come in and you're like, well, what can we do about it now? It's working with it. And I think, you know, I, I like to give credit to everyone on the support staff. Veterinarians are very creative, but let me tell you guys, you have a building full of creative people who love what they do. And in, when given a challenge, they will rise to it. So if you have a client who doesn't have a traditional setting or there isn't traditional means of incorporating exercise and good nutrition, there is more ways than ever nowadays to do so. So there's just no excuses, even for cats. All right. Well, so now we switch to the survey about, you know, asking about like sort of their beliefs and and the myths and misperceptions, all that stuff. So the first question that we asked that, that I think is really important for us to discuss today is, is where do pet owners trust dietary recommendations? So is it the veterinarian? Is it online? Is it a pet store, a friend, a breeder, or a trainer? And this is where we start to see some discordance. And so I want to get you, your your opinion on this, uh, Julie. You know, first and foremost, 57% of pet owners say the veterinarian is a trusted source of dietary recommendations. And veterinary professionals ranked ourselves 78%, as, as you would expect. But what do you think about this next part? So pet owners say 57%. They say, yes, Vet's a great person. Yet this year, once again, we see a creep upward. 52% of pet owners say online dietary recommendations are preferred. What do you make of that? 
I think that is an increasing trend. And so I, you know, I'm not uh, a social media expert by any means, but I just learned that uh, online surveys and ratings actually top people's uh, go-to advice regardless of any product that they're buying. And so they're trusting online um, surveys and ratings and rankings above their friends and and obviously, I think, trusted experts. I do think, though, we need to consider, I know I've worked for many veterinarians who really give the whole shop in the middle of the aisle speech. And I think that they may be going to these sources because when they ask their veterinary professionals, they may not be getting a real, actual, specific recommendation like we just talked about. I don't think we're making them because I think a lot of veterinary professionals are uncomfortable. I don't know. What are your thoughts? I agree. That's why I go back to what my hopes and dreams are for every graduating veterinarian is that they will feel it's their responsibility to give a specific recommendation. That's in partnership with the client, yes. where they want to shop. There, are, The great news is there are wonderful choices at every niche. And so it's helping them with with relevant information, not just go and buy a good brand. Yep. And, and this is one of the things that I have implored veterinary professionals over the past decade. We need to have a more, uh, more of a presence online. You need to be out there making your own nutritional philosophy known to your clients. So... Facebook postings, Instagram pictures, you know, website blogs, whatever it is, you need to be in this game because right now pet owners are, are kind of split. Half say vets are a great source of uh, dietary recommendations, half say online. If we go down further, uh, just in brief, 15% of pet owners say the pet store is a preferred or, or, or trusted source, and only 9% of vet professionals would agree with that. Friends are evenly divided at 10%. Breeders, pet owners said 7% compared to veterinary professionals, and trainers have definitely con- Continued to drip in our serve or dip in our survey. Six uh, percent of pet owners and veterinary professionals only say five percent. So again, we have a lot of, of room to, to improve. I think. Now, I also wanted to make sure we asked this year on the tenth year anniversary, and this was 2017 survey results, of course. Uh, what people thought about pet food safety, because you know 2017 was the massive melamine pet food recall, and I, I got some pretty interesting results here. I think so. Julie, sixty-three um, percent of pet owners and seventy-six percent of veterinary professionals agreed with the statement that commercial pet food is better than it was 10 years ago. So what do you think that means in terms of of trust of commercial pet foods? I think in general it's good news, and and it's getting that message out that at first there uh, is this fear of recalls, and it's reframing it that recalls, voluntary recalls, can actually be an indicator of early surveillance and quality control. So again, I think... Um, there's been an explosion of of the whole varieties of types of foods, so you can match feeding philosophy with the owners a little bit better. But in general, I'm glad to see confidence is increasing because I, I agree there's some really great choices. And Becky, you know, I, I think that further supporting this this survey results are the fact that pet food sales, commercial pet food sales, are at all-time highs, and each year they break a record. I mean, from a veterinary technician perspective, what do you think about this? You know, is pet food better or safer, I guess we should say, than it was 10 years ago? Yeah, you know, I think this is one area where veter- why veterinarians and veterinary professionals kind of 
don't like to make specific recommendations because we got really scared uh, a long, you know, years ago when the foods we recommended were causing problems. And so I think it is an area of where we do shy away and there is some confusion. But what I find interesting is um, I think there's a very strong emotional connection here. We decide we think a brand is not quality and not okay and we get really angry and we talk against it constantly. But again, we don't necessarily have a great resource to back why or what we think. Um, I know that food companies do a great job in marketing, and I think that has a lot to do with why these sales are, are going through the roof. But I also see the veterinary market looking to try to take it back. There is some real leadership going on there. I know there's initiatives for these brands to be able to make it easier for veterinarians to be the main source of the client's pet food sourcing, whether it's prescription or not. So I see that shift moving, and I think it's interesting. Um, More to come for sure. Yeah, more to come for sure. Well, we also, uh, you know, I tend to recommend that people give like fresh hold veggies, you know, maybe adding sweet potatoes to diets. I I recommend a lot of quote unquote people foods as a supplement for not only good nutrition, but maybe in a weight loss strategy. So we asked this year, do they think that people food was healthy or unhealthy? And 65% of pet owners and 67% of veterinary professionals said that people foods for pets were generally unhealthy. Julie, how do you interpret that? My guess is when they answered that, and we'll never know, is that when they're thinking people food, it's the rich, uh, calorie-laden things uh, the, that are left over, the fat trimmings and the other things, as opposed to veggies and what, what my clients might call rabbit food. <laughs> right. Becky, uh, what do you think? I totally agree. And that, you know, that's my thought exactly is when we say are people food good or bad? You know, I'm thinking about the fact that my dog legitimately knows when we pull into Starbucks and that she's getting a puppuccino. And if you don't know what a puppuccino is, it is a cup full of whipped cream. And so when when you say to me, is, is people food good for pets? I'm thinking about what is it they actually get? And is it a cup full of whipped cream? Or is it the fact that, you know, after we looked at chow hounds, we did incorporate um, a lot of, you know, eggs and veggies and healthy based foods that have really inc- improved their quality of life. So uh, I think it is absolutely the foods we're specifically thinking of uh, on our, our end. Yeah. And uh, the reason that, we, that I really dug into that question is the terminology around it. And I think you guys both made excellent points there. I think it's just framing that message and people food probably has a different definition in different people's minds. Absolutely. I also think that uh, it's, a, it's our opportunity as the veterinary healthcare team to identify the healthy choices like the veggies and the treats and to make a recommendation for treating with those items. And again, back to the specifics. Well, for the past couple of years, we've also explored terminology like organic and raw and so forth. And so once again, this year, we ask about was organic, we ask if organic pet food was healthier. And 39% of the pet owners this year said that organic pet food was healthier. That is down from last year in 2016. So 40% though this year said, I don't know if organic pet food is healthier. And, and again, that is way up from the previous year. So Julie, obviously there's seems to be some confusion in the market around organic pet foods. Yeah, there's confusion not just among pet parents, but also veterinary professionals of organic versus natural and um, what it means and whether it's more healthful or not. It's also a lot harder to find truly organic pet foods. So it may just be a feature that you're not you're uncertain because it's really truly harder to find. 
Yeah, Becky, what about you? What are you hearing in veterinary technician circles, like organic and natural? Are you hearing more I don't knows? Yeah, I think in general, people are shifting as we discover that organic isn't very well regulated. And so I think people are are getting tired of people spending more money on something that's labeled in a way that isn't really backed or guaranteed. And in finding out that these things are not maybe authentic and, and as, you know, different associations kind of get um, uncovered with their ingredients. So I think we've learned to be wary and, and there are less people on the bandwagon of these these hot button terms. Yeah. So, again, if you're out there making food selections for your own family, for your pets, if you choose organic, which I do and I recommend you actually, you know, carefully criticize the foods, but you need to be very careful in your selection because as Becky and Julie have both stated, organic doesn't always mean organic and what your version of organic may be could be completely different than somebody else's. Um, This year, we also ask around dry food versus canned food. And so we wanted to first of all ask uh, pet owners, we divided them into dog and cat categories, and we wanted to see who fed what. And 53% of pet owners and 69% of veterinary professionals said they preferred and gave dry kibble to their dog. What do you make of that, Julie? Well, it, I think it's it's always been the mainstay of many dog diets because it's simply more affordable. Uh, but also there is a pervasive belief that it helps with oral health. Whether that's true or not, that's uh, a common belief that even veterinary students enters, enter the vet curriculum believing with every fiber. Right. Well, well, Becky, for cats, it was a lot more evenly split. And we found that dry cat food was preferred by about 49% of pet owners and mm. 57% of vet professionals. But uh, canned food, 38% of pet owners and 33% of, of vet professionals. So a big jump, you know, from the dog version. But again, you know, how do you interpret that? Like, so, so more cats are fed canned food, you know, 38% of pet owners reported and a third of vet professionals. Why why do you think they're feeding more canned food to cats? Well, I think the science is out there. The conversations are out there. I mean, we're talking about cats need to be on canned food. That dry food is, is obviously carbohydrates are not the choice for cats. And so what I'm happy to hear is that that's making its, its message around and that is the trend um, and that we are seeing more, more use because it, it, we know it's better for them. So what that tells me is that there are, is more education getting out there and, and that's a win. You know, we know that it can be difficult to instill change across the industry. I just want to interject that I I don't uh, necessarily recommend all canned cat food for all cats. It's a great way to give water to them. Uh, I don't worry as much about the carbohydrate content of dry food when they are healthy and in an appropriate body weight, and it can be a really uh, affordable way to feed cats. I recommend a mixture, and again, part of that is to enable food flexibility for cats later in life when I need to uh, think therapeutically, I have more options and the cat is more likely to be accepting of both forms. Yep. And those are really good points uh, yeah. from Dr. Julie Churchill. So appreciate that. And, and this is, again, as a veterinary professionals, we have to, you've got to go out there, study and develop your own food philosophies and understand the science. And then you can make your own decisions and recommendations. So, I mean, I love, thank you, Julie, for bringing that in. But getting back to a point you made earlier, which is a concern around oral health, we asked this question this year, if feeding a predominantly canned or moist food will damage your pet's teeth. 
All right, so we wanted to get into this this whole thing that Julie brought up. And 35% of pet owners and 31% of veterinary professionals said yes, predominantly canned or moist diet will damage their pet's teeth. Julie, what do you how do you what do you make of that? <laughs> I'm not surprised, and yet in the dog there is no evidence to say that that is true. In the cat there is a small uh, st- statistically significant, but probably not clinically relevant. You still need to teach the owner, pet owners about oral health. Nothing trumps toothbrushing, which frankly is really challenging to do in cats, but this is a strongly held belief. They believe it will damage. I mean, that was the terminology we used. Feeding a predominantly canned food will damage your pet's teeth. A third of the, a 31% of any professionals said yes. Opportunities there for education. <laughs> <laughs> Teachable moments. Yeah, I, I, again, you know, I was surprised it was that high. I, um, you know, I expected pet owners to, to say, oh, yeah, I've, I've heard that it rots their teeth out or whatever. But Becky, I mean, you know, these are veterinary technicians answering these questions as well. Uh, I mean, do you have any... Yeah, I don't know. I I guess I guess when I hear that, I I wouldn't necessarily think it would be directly related to damage. But as you know, Dr. Julie said, I think that a lot of people are under the misconception that hard food in in dry food diets are going to improve oral health, and unless they are specifically created to do so, that's not the case. So I almost wonder if that perception is, well, by being on wet food, ultimately you don't get the benefit of the crunch and therefore they're damaged. So I'm not sure that that is an actual direct correlation in their head or if it's just an interpretation of the question because they really couldn't justify um, that. The only other thing I can really think of is, you know, my cats also eat a blend of of wet and dry foods and, you know, they get wet food in their teeth and it looks kind of gross. And that'd be the only other thing I can think of um, be, but again, I think this is a matter of teachable moments, and it's a great thing that we have this survey to go back and say, where can we be doing a better job educating support staff and veterinarians and pet owners alike? Yeah. And Julie, uh, the good news is 58% of veterinary professionals surveyed said no, that canned food would not damage your pet's teeth. Is there any evidence that feeding a predominantly canned or wet food will damage a pet's teeth? Dogs, there's none. Zero zip. Cats, again, they accrued tartar a little bit more uh, quickly, but I, I think it goes back to that they're still going to need dental prophies. So, so if it changes the interval minimally, I, I don't think it's really even worth talking about. Right, right. So, the, the, yeah, it's very, it doesn't cause damage, you know. So, no, no. Uh, yeah, right. So raw diets, once again, Julie, your favorite topic in the world. <laughs> We ask, do you think raw diets are healthier for dogs and cats? 28% of pet owners said yes, raw food is healthier for dogs and cats. That is down from 35% last year. 13% of veterinary professionals said a raw diet was healthier. That is down from 15% in 2016. Yes, and it's not surprising. I'm actually encouraged that it's down. But the spectrum of what is now defined as raw is getting wider and wider and grayer and grayer in that zone. of It's not a black and white topic at all. But I think that really mirrors the trend in human nutrition with paleo diets and, you know, the... Uh, reduced processing. So I think it's the owners that are really craving that whole foods concept 
are the ones that are drawn to the raw. Yeah, and Becky, what, what I found really interesting this year was the confusion element. Uh, when we ask, I don't know, as an answer to raw diet, is it healthier? 45% of pet owners said, I don't know this year. And that is where the gap began because 35% in 2016 said they didn't know. So we're, that's up 10%. Uh, vet professionals were still about the same, 15% this year, 14% last year. But obviously, there's a lot of confusion around raw. And I think part of that, again, is there is now an expanding definition of what is raw. And we see raw foods that come in a bag on the shelf. And so I think there's some confusion about that. And I also think we have seen circumstances, you know, with um, dermatology type issues and things like that, where it, it has had positive effects. And so I think that it is finding a little bit more um information about it, but also, again, the expanding definition is causing some confusion. Yeah, I, th I think that's really a key because many of us that are uh, out as educators are teaching both the, the veterinary professional as well as pet parents to look for products that have been pasteurized, so high-pressure pasteurization, and to be safe. I don't want any pet to become ill or any human in the world of those pets to become ill. And it's not to say they can't from other foods or cooked foods, but I think that it's less if you if you insist on pasteurization. And that's, I think, maybe leads to the confusion on what is raw anymore and, and looking for pasteurized products is kind of tricky to do. Yeah. So my advice continues to be, as it's been for the past five or six years, if you have clients who are interested in raw, then you want to look for the high pressure pasteurization, the HPP processing. Uh, these They've freeze-dried, you know, there's some amazing products out there. I guess uh, Nature's Variety is one of the leaders, you know, Instinct and so forth. Uh, again, just just if you're out there, there are alternatives to feeding raw chicken eggs, you know, which could be a problem. Uh, and then finally, Julie, I don't want to let you go before we talk about low, no-grain diets and corn. Once again, we ask, are low or no-grain diets healthier for dogs? 46% of pet owners, 21% of vet professionals say that low or no-grain diets are healthier. 12% um, of pet owners said no, and 63% of vet professionals said there's no benefit as far as health when it comes to low or no grain diets. Where do you fall on that? <laughs> there, uh, grain is not going away. I live in the heartland where we grow all this grain, and grain can be such a wonderful source of nutrition that that's where I fall. Uh, but many of there are more and more and more products that are low or no grain that may benefit. And so I think that it's just been such a difficult conversation. Healthcare professionals are about to call to cry uncle and just choose one that's low or no grain. And I think that leads to that viewpoint that low or no grain is beneficial because it matches the pet parents feeding philosophy, not from the nutritional uh, quality. Yeah, it's a touchy subject, but Becky, we know that corn is even more radioactive at times. We ask, do you think corn is healthy for dogs? And then we ask them if corn was healthy for cats. Becky, no big surprise here. Only 5%, and I will repeat, only 5% of pet owners said that corn is healthy for dogs compared with 50% of vet professionals. And yes, 3% of cat owners said that corn was healthy for cats compared to 34%, which I want to ask Julie about that in just a second. So, uh, Becky, the corn issue comes up over and over again. Obviously, pet owners don't think it's healthy for dogs or cats. Yeah, and again, I think it's just about education, right? And and I think sometimes we get wore out on topics that, you know, we're not driven or passionate about. And so when we have to explain 
the corn situation to clients for the 500th time in a day, maybe we just roll our eyes and we don't put the passion behind it. But it's our job to educate. I mean, this information gets out there. They get it in their head. They they don't understand that the digestive tracts of dogs and cats are not the digestive tracts of humans. And we have to remind our clients about that. They don't know what they don't know. So this is definitely an education point. And, you know, I talk to people, you know, all the time that say, what are some good things we should be putting on social media? We never have anything for our newsletter. (laughs) Like these are the great (laughs) educational points. We have all these areas of disconnect that we wish our clients knew better about. Then these are the areas where we could be educating them. And Julie, the last thing before we let you go, I want to ask you about is again, the confusion around corn for veterinary professionals. I mean, half of the veterinary professionals we surveyed said that corn, they didn't, that corn was not healthy or they didn't know for dogs. And, uh, Two-thirds of veterinary professionals said corn was not healthy or they didn't know for cats. So I think, you know, there's a lot of, of confusion amongst us. Yeah, there really is. And I think it's going back to that nutrition nerd in me. It's more about uh, posing what does corn provide? And if you don't use corn, how many other ways you need to get those nutrients in there? How do you find the essential Uh, linoleic acid, the B vitamins, the carbohydrate, and so that when we avoid it, we're looking for harder to find, more expensive, more unique, or less sustainable products. Wow, that's brilliant. Well, if you want to find out more, certainly go to petobesityprevention.org. You can download the complete results. Uh, Julie, I want to thank you so much for taking your time. I know you're busy in clinics this week, uh, but thank you for talking to our listeners about these important uh, issues. Oh, I'm happy to. I love talking food. And Julie and I have got some very exciting stuff uh, that's going to be starting up at AVMA in July. So I hope to have you back on after we have a little more to report, Julie. Happy to be here. Yeah. Well, Becky, again, thank you so much for taking time out. You're busy, too. Becky's in the middle of a move. Hey, we're all busy. I am just about at the very, I'm not in the middle. Let's call it the tail end, home stretch, light at the end of the tunnel in my new house and my new pod closet. Well, we would love to hear your thoughts and opinions and, and what your biggest myths and misperceptions are in your clinic around nutrition. So please hit us up on social media. Twitter, we're at Vet Viewfinder. Online, we're at Veterinary Viewfinder on Facebook and on Instagram. And don't forget to click to subscribe so you don't miss one great episode of the Veterinary Viewfinder. And while you're at it, don't hesitate to give us four or five star review. That is what helps propel this podcast forward. So if when you're on iTunes, just click us a four or five star. It means so much and it helps get our message out to other veterinary professionals. Until next time, bye. Bye. See you later.